right, welcome to day 323 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Ezekiel 36 and 37, Psalm 129, and James 3. Okay, Ezekiel begins today with something that probably sounds a little bit familiar. You, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. Back in chapter 6, you might recall, uh, that was exactly what the prophet was commanded to do there as well. Um, but as we've been seeing, the direction that things are starting to head with respect to the prophecies to the people of Judah slash the people of Israel is very positive now, right? Like this is God talking about restoration and what he will uh, one day do for his people. So whereas in chapter 6, it's prophesy against the mountains of Israel. Here it's prophesy to the mountains of Israel, which is a translational choice because in both contexts it's the same preposition. L could mean to or against, but of course because today's is more positive, whereas chapter 6 was more uh, negative, I think that is an appropriate translation. Uh, so because the enemy said of you, aha, the ancient heights have become our possession, right? We've taken possession of the land precisely because they made you desolate, crushed you from all sides, so that you became the possession of the rest of the nations and became the talk and evil gossip of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of Yahweh. And then in this kind of conscious correspondence with chapter 6, you have these specific uh, features mentioned, okay? Say, to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and valleys. That language is used in chapter 6, verse 3. The desolate wastes and deserted cities which have become a prey and a division, a derision to the rest of the nations all around. Um, uh, surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom. Note how yesterday in chapter 35 we had an extra oracle against Edom. Edom receives special attention in several of the prophets, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel in particular, of course Obadiah as well, uh, for their role. <clears throat> who gave my land to them as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they might make its pasture lands a prey. This is what the nations, and especially Edom, uh, felt towards Judah and did towards Judah. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel, say to the mountains and the hills, the ravines and the valleys, there that, there, that is again, from, uh, uh, here in verse 4 and now in verse 6, and corresponding again to chapter 6, verse 3. Thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I have spoken in my jealous wrath, because you've suffered all the reproach of the nations. I swear that the nations that are all around you shall themselves suffer reproach. So the nations, the very nations that derided you, will now be judged but you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel. The, here are the mountains being pictured, of course, covered with trees that are bearing fruit, who will soon come home. Okay, the end of verse 8. For behold, I am for you. I will turn to you. You shall be tilled and sown. Okay, the people will come back and they will be, be using this land and will be fruitful in the land. And I will multiply people on you. The cities shall be inhabited, the waste places rebuilt. Uh, I will multiply on you man and beast. They shall multiply and be fruitful. Notice the Genesis language here. Uh, it's 
kind of interesting. Uh, we also see in today's passage, right, that there, he's going to be talking about the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel does seem to be well aware of the creation narrative of Genesis. And I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, um, and will do more good to you than ever before. And this kind of language, I, we should probably tag, I think I've mentioned this before, but really does uh, contribute to the anticipation uh, of, from the Old Testament as a whole, right? Because as we're going to see, the exiles do indeed return, and it's worth asking when they return, are, is this really a time for the fulfillment of these prophecies? Can we say that God is doing more good to them than he ever has before? And that's part of what should and does and did lead the post-exilic community to look forward to a future fulfillment of these prophecies, that although they return to the land, there is only partial fulfillment in that at best. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, hear this key phrase in Isaiah being used in a positive sense. Um, and then go down to verse 13, because they say to you, you devour people and you bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall no longer devour people and shall no longer bereave your nation of children. So there is something of a reputation that the land has for doom coming upon it, uh, on the people who inhabited it. In fact, this was the initial perception of the Israelite spies when they first went into the land in Numbers 13 to scout it out. In verse 32 there in Numbers 13, uh, part of the bad report is that we've gone through the land to spy it out, and it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And then what happened to those inhabitants? Well, God judged them by Israel and established Israel there, and then what happened to Israel? Well, God judged Israel. And so is this land cursed? Is it cursed to live in this land? But no, that will, that will never be thought anymore. You shall no longer bear the disgrace of the peoples and no longer cause your nation to stumble. And I think it's probably appropriate to say that the casual observer of events even today might say the same thing, that this little sliver of land in the, in the Middle East um, is a land of extremely hot contention. What is it about this land that causes it to be so tumultuous for anybody who lays claim on it? So we might ask, you know, are, are we still looking forward to the fulfillment of what the promises say here? And depending on who you ask, different questions that will be answered in different ways. But I, th I think pretty much any perspective on this does say, would say that, that the ultimate fulfillment of this, even today, has yet to come. Whether you think these promises are completely being fulfilled in the church and that we await a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, as Hebrews might put it, or whether you think that the promises, the physical land promises to Israel have yet to be completely fulfilled, right? Any perspective that a Christian might hold on this passage, and perhaps even a Jewish person might hold on this passage, I think would legitimately ask those questions. And then in verse 16, the word of Yahweh comes again to Ezekiel, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. So they defiled it, right? And this informs what the actual true perspective is of the land that devours its people, okay? So both with the Israelite spies' evaluation of it in Numbers 13, as well as here in verse 13, 
the idea that the land devours its people is not really true. It's, it's the fact that the people who live in it defile it, defile this, this, this promised land that God has given to them. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. Of course, one of the, um, the central uh, purity laws of the Old Testament. So I poured out my wrath upon them uh, for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they de- defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, dispersed them through the countries, uh, and all according to justice, right? In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, and here is the issue that the exile presents, right? That the, that the people who see this conclude these are the people of Yahweh, yet they had to go out of his land. And so there's something, uh, the judgment of God does something to the reputation of God. This world that is, that is created for his glory and peoples who are created to know him see this and they, and, and, you know, is this what becomes of that the people whom Yahweh has chosen? And so now God will respond to this. He says, I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. This is an idea which we have seen before in chapter 20. Uh, It's repeated there in verses 9, 14, and 22, right? Um, Where where throughout Israel's history, whether in Egypt or coming into, or having come out of Egypt or coming into the land, um, you have this uh, repeated phrase, right? Then I said that I would pour out my wrath. So you have the judgment, and here in Ezekiel, the corresponding judgment, of course, the exile. But then I acted for the sake of my name. So we have people's sin, God's judgment, um, and then God deciding for the sake of acting for his name. And I think that this is centrally important to our understanding of salvation in general in the Bible, right? That it is not because of something good in us that God chooses to save us, but he saves us, and this is where we get the idea that God saves us for his own glory, for his own, because that's who he is. It's not that we're particularly lovable to him, it's that he is good and that he is holy. And that's pretty cool to think of, I think, because typically, you know, when I as a sinner contemplate God's holiness to the limited extent that I can, I think, uh-oh, you know, I think, woe is me. But it's that very holiness that, uh, that, that brings God to judge sin that also brings him to act for the salvation of his people. But as I said, this idea, this concept that God pours out his wrath and then acts for the sake of his name, this is well and good, but it's kind of a bit of a cycle. Right? It's, it's kind of like it's just happening over and over again, kind of like the book of Judges, right? And it doesn't seem to be getting better. So if God is promising to do something great for his people, to act for the sake of his name, what is going to be different now? And that leads us into a portion of text in Ezekiel, which, is, uh, which takes up a lot of these new covenant themes in the way that Ezekiel has been preventing, uh, presenting them to us. So therefore say to the house of Israel, verse 22, thus says Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, right? That's what we just said, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you you came, both the way in which God's name is profaned by, um, you know, witnessing his people 
have to go into judgment, but then also, as we've seen, their behavior in exile, their ways in exile, not exactly uh, pinnacles of, of Yahweh worship. So God will act for the sake of his own name, and he says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. The form of the verb to make holy here, which the ESV translates vindicate holiness, usually is refer. it's in the D stem in Hebrew, also called the PL stem. And this is um, usually used when we're talking about consecrating something or making something holy, and this is what God says he will do to his name. Not that his name isn't holy anyway, uh, but this this movement of God that he will do is something that will, I think the idea is, cause my name to be regarded by whole, as holy as it should have been all along. I think that's kind of the idea, so that the, hence the English Standard Version, vindicate my holiness. Um, because up till now, my name's been profaned among the nations because of what my people have done. You have profaned it among them. The nations will know that I am Yahweh, and here, not in judgment, here in witnessing what he will do um, for their salvation. When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. There it is again. And how will God do this? Well, verse 24, number one, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. So here's the the new Exodus idea, the reversal of the exile. And then I will cleanse you. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Uh, Think about uh, particularly the Gospel of John, right, where water is such a central motif and the the cleansing uh, uh, to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no place with me. Um, Then in verse 26, um, the giving of a new heart is here as well, which of course we've seen in uh, the key passage that introduces that, chapter 11, verse 19. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And then notice the wording, which resembles very closely the wording of 19. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then we have the giving of the spirit, which of course is also there in chapter 11. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my ways so that you're careful to obey my rules. Notice that it is the Spirit of God that causes obedience, which, as we saw yesterday, is why James can so confidently talk to even to the extent of justification by works, which is, you know, um, <laughs> you know you've got to do some work to figure out how that fits in with what Paul is saying. But I, I suppose one an, another way we could kind of look at what James is saying there, right, is that if this, if these new covenant promises are true, then that does make perfect sense, okay? Because the justification that we receive, um, this idea of receiving a right standing before God, that is the cleansing, uh, but bound up with that. It's not that it stops there, right? Like, it's, it's not like it's just verse 24. No, verse 26 also happens as part of what salvation is. So if there's a new heart beating in your chest— empowered by the Spirit of God, then you have the causing to walk in his statutes and obeying his rules. And I really think that that's how it works. I think it's 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 more of a problem for those who kind of don't consider uh, what the comprehensive promises of the new covenant to God's people are. And so he says, um, 
you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. So that is when that ultimate promise to Abraham for his offspring, for his descendants, and for us Gentiles who have been grafted in, that is, as we often refer to, as the heart of the covenant there. Um, there will be abundant blessing. I will summon grain and, and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Also something we've already seen in, a, in Ezekiel, this heavy spirit of conviction for sin, chapter 20, verse 43. It is not for your sake that I will act. Notice the inclusio here in this paragraph, right? That's how he began in chapter 20, in verse 22, and now this is how he's capping it off in verse 32. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares Lord Yahweh. And then he goes on, on that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause the cities to be inhabited. Waste places shall be rebuilt. The land that was desolate shall be tilled. Um, and it will even be, they will even look at it and say, the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Remember I said that Ezekiel is, seems to be very aware of those opening chapters of Genesis. Notice the be fruitful and multiply from the first table of creation in chapter 1 and the now the concept of the Garden of Eden from Genesis 2. And the waste and the desolate and ruined cities will now be fortified and inhabited. And then at the end of the chapter, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so not in the sense that it's about to be killed, right? But that like there's a lot. We've got a lot of animals here. Um, and here we have the idea of uh, the shepherd, right? The, the people as the flock of God so shall be the the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. And I think that's very important, right? Because where do you see, in what part of Israel do you see that the flock for sacrifice around Jerusalem? But here it's even the waste cities that are filled with the flock of God. Then they will know, and here we have it again being used in an oracle of salvation, that I am Yahweh. Okay, then we come to chapter 37. And chapter 37 is... Uh, I don't know, maybe the thing that Ezekiel is most known for, and this is the Valley of Dry Bones. So, the hand of Yahweh was upon me, and this is language that was used in some of the early visions of Ezekiel, like when he saw the great creatures, the cherubim, back in chapter 1, verse 3, and then at the uh, towards the end of it, the, that vision in 314, uh, and he's brought to the valley in 322, the hand of the Lord is upon him as well. It's also there when he's shown the temple um, abominations in chapter 8, verse 1, and, and as he awaits the fugitive to tell him of the news of Jerusalem's destruction in 33.22. So the hand of Yahweh is upon him, and he brings him out in the spirit of Yahweh and sets him down in the middle of a valley. And uh, this appears to me to be a visionary experience. I don't think, just like a lot of these other uh, things were, uh, I mean, not all of them, not the waiting for the fugitive, right? But um, the, actually, the hand of the Lord is upon him and then brings him and sets him somewhere. That's usually a way of denoting a visionary experience. So as opposed to this like happening in real, a real place in time, I think what he's being shown here is a vision. And he looks around himself, and it's full of bones. So this isn't a cemetery. These are people who have been slain by some kind of battle. 
And um, it, I think it becomes kind of evident that these indeed are to symbolize those who have been slain by God's judgment. Okay? And he leads him around them, and there are very many on the surface of the valley. So, you know, the exiles thinking back to Israel, this is what is there, right? Dead people, people who have been, who have been slain by the sword. And, um, and God asks him, son of man, can these bones live? And he's, he's basically like, uh, I don't understand the question, right? Oh, Lord Yahweh, you know. And then God says to him, prophesy over these bones, right? Remember, Ezekiel is only to open his mouth with the words that God gives to him. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Lord Yahweh to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. So this extraordinary thing he's told to prophesy. Note, just like he's been prophesying this extraordinary future hope and life in the Spirit to God's people who have been slain by the sword. And it might seem impossible to them that any of this can happen. The restoration of the land to the land, sure, of course, but the, the prosperity there, sure, of course, but how about having a new heart, right? And actually being careful to obey God's statutes and to walk in his rules, okay? So this is what we are about to be shown, the power of of God to fulfill his word. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And I love the way it builds up the tension, right? Like you can almost like imagine the, the, the just the sound first. Like, what's that? And behold, a rattling. Now it's rattling, and the bones just come together, bone to bone. And then there's sinews on them, and then flesh comes upon them, and then skin covers them, but there's no breath in them. So now you have corpses, okay? Not skeletons, not scattered bones, but corpses. So it's an improvement. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. And here it's worth noting that the Hebrew word for breath is the same as the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach. Okay, the spirit that God has promised to put in his people. Prophesy to the Ruach, prophesy, son of man, and say to the Ruach, thus says Lord Yahweh, come from the four winds, O Ruach, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the Ruach came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. It is not insignificant that the key part for the people's transformation in the New Covenant promises is the giving of the Ruach, the giving of the Spirit. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, and I will put my Ruach within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken, I will do it, declares Yahweh. 
Now, it should come as no surprise that this passage has contributed significantly to the understanding of resurrection in the Bible. And on one level, of course, one could just take this as very vivid imagery for uh, restoration, the restoration of God's people, and indeed like what we've been saying, right? Like that this is God's power to bring about, to fulfill his promises, to give his spirit, which gives life to his people, and kind of leave it at that. But I think it's also appropriate to link this with some of the other passages um, in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, which gesture at something magnificent that God is going to do, something beyond the vision of what a lot of Israelites then would have thought possible. And uh, so, for example, the two passages that are often cited as contributing to resurrection the most, aside from this one in the Old Testament— would be first Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, you who dwell in the dust arise and sing for joy, for the dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Okay, And then Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. Notice how much sharper the idea is in Daniel. And, I, and Ezekiel, of course, stands between Isaiah and Daniel. Now, of course, we've seen um, instances of individuals being revived to life in the Old Testament. You have the son of the widow of Zarephath uh, with the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 17. You have the son of the Shunammite woman under Elisha in 2 Kings 4. And um, you also have... Remember that the man who was thrown into Elisha's grave in 2 Kings 13, 20 through 21. But here, notice how we have themes of national restoration of Israel combined with the idea of resurrection. And the, um, the only other place I'm aware of that connects that is the beginning of Hosea 6, um, which reads, Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. And here, the notion of a nation that has been slain by the sword, the bones are the whole house of Israel, uh, being given new life, and being given new life in particular by the Ruach, that is sent from God. Now, I would stop short from saying that this is a direct picture of resurrection, that from this passage we could conclude, therefore, in the end of days, God will physically raise the bodies of all who are his and give them new uh, to new and to eternal life. Although, you do really seem to get that idea in Daniel 12, too. But what this does is it supplies the elements of the way that the New Testament draws these themes together. The fulfillment of God's promise to restore his people, to give them new life, and indeed to raise them from the dead, and all through the work of the Spirit of God. So I see this text as kind of like a priming of the pump uh, for the uh, for the conception that will become much clearer and, of course, much more central in the old in the New Testament, the concept of resurrection. Okay, then the promises um, continue with yet another um, prophetic enactment. Uh, we haven't seen one of these for a little while now, 
but now he's instructed to take a stick and to write on it. And these and and on one of them, he's to write for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. That, of course, would be the southern kingdom. And take another stick and to write for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. Recall that many of the northern kingdom kings are from the tribe of Ephraim and all the house of Israel associated with him. So that is the northern kingdom. And join them together into one stick. And then when the people come to him and ask him, what, what, uh, will you not tell us what these mean? Say to them, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. So here is a reunification of the kingdom. So whereas God's, for the majority of their history, they existed as two separate kingdoms, now they will be uh, that that will be restored. Um, they will be restored. There will be one people of God under one king, right? Whom we have seen is is God's servant David. Behold, um, down in verse twenty one, I will take the people of Israel from the nations to which they've gone, bring them to their land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, and one king shall be over them. They shall no longer be two uh, nations, and then. Again, to to reinforce this idea of of David reigning over the one people of God, my servant David shall be king over them, verse 24, they shall have one shepherd, of course, connecting us to the ideas and themes of chapter 34. They shall walk in my rules, be careful to obey my statutes, they shall dwell in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, um, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. My servant David shall be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them. The new covenant is described as a berit shalom, a covenant of peace elsewhere in Ezekiel in 34.25. And not only will it be a covenant of peace, but it will be an everlasting covenant, and I will set them in their land and multiply them. And then think about some of the themes of the sanctuary. In fact, Ezekiel starts with the idea that God's uh, presence, right? His glory indeed is mobile. It's on these wheels. It's being carried by the cherubim. And indeed, in chapter 10, right, we see the glory of God carried off um, out of the city. Um, and then, the, you know, that brief promise we noted in 1116, I have been um, a sanctuary to them in all the nations that I have scattered them to. Um, and and here now we have the sanctuary of God back in the place where his people are dwelling. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will, will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Okay, let's now head over once again to the Psalms, Psalm 129, another one of our Song of Ascents. And here, this is God's, this Psalm is all about God's deliverance from oppressors. So greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Like that's, for some people, that's all they've known, right? Let Israel now say. Greatly they've afflicted me from my youth. So repetition, of course, yet they have not prevailed against me. So standing up under unjust oppression, um, and certainly there are many times throughout the history of Israel that this would have been true. The plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. 
this appears to be an, an imagery of some kind of exploitation, right? Um, uh, often uh, doing things on the back on on another person's back, like that would be the idea here. Much like we see, for example, in Isaiah fifty one twenty three, I will put into I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, "This is the cup of the wrath of God." You know, so I'm going to put that cup into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over and you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Here they are, they are uh, perhaps this is a metaphor here then for the extraction of some kind of wealth, some kind of resources, right? They're plowing the back, uh, uh, one's back. Yahweh is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, right? Do you think that the grass that just happens to be growing a little patch that's up there on top of the flat Israelite household is, is really going to flourish? No, it withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand. Okay? It's not like you've got a reaper, like let's reap some of the grasses that are growing on top of houses, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. So let him be like the one who does not receive blessing in the name of Yahweh. Okay, let's go now to James chapter 3. So James chapter 3 begins with a stern warning. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The background to this seems to be this idea that I often note that one's knowledge corresponds to one's level of guilt, right? Like if you have good knowledge about God, then uh, it's not that if you don't have really explicit knowledge of God, you're not guilty, but that you, that the level of guilt increases the, the, the more and the better your knowledge of God and what he requires of you and who you are and especially who he is, um, that the greater your knowledge, the greater your accountability. And those who are teachers themselves kind of are out there because they, for one reason or another, believe that they do know enough to teach others, to instruct others. Um, notice here the, the judging with greater strictness, um, something that came into the discussion yesterday when we were talking about like the one who uh, breaks any part of the law is guilty of, of all the law. And um, I noted there that that doesn't mean that all sins are created equal, um, and here I think we have evidence that James understands that, right? That there is a, a greater level of uh, of guilt and accountability for those who are teachers and then who the, go say false things. And then he gets into one of his discourses on the tongue. He he has a lot to say about the the tongue and speech in this letter. He's already introduced this theme at the end of chapter 1 in, um, in verse 26 as, as one example of what false religion is like, the one who does not bridle his tongue. And, uh, and here, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So here, very much concerned about speech as well. And now, I think that this is obviously like a general principle that's true. So it, technically it is applicable in a lot of areas, but also technically if we are um, really paying attention to context here and, you know, James does have kind of a f floppy context, right? He's not, 
is sometimes things kind of come out of left field, right? There's not always an obvious connection between one thing and the previous thing that was said, but usually he at least sticks on a similar topic for a paragraph. And so the speech that he's probably talking about here is false teaching, as opposed to like, you know, somebody who drops F-bombs um, every time he gets upset or something like that. Like that still would be an issue, right? That still is an issue of being able to bridle your tongue. But here, if we're if we're kind of trying to establish some kind of contextual clues, it really seems like it's what he teaches people about God and about what God requires of the of of, of them. So that seems to be the person that this has in view. <clears throat> um, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies well. No, notice the the idea here, uh, the illustration. The idea that in a horse, it's led by the mouth. And so with the words we say, our whole way of life is led by the things that that come out of our mouths. Look also at ships. They're, dri they're sh so large. So here now, you know, both these things, a big horse driven by its mouth. And now here, a big ship driven um, um, so, so large and driven by strong winds, yet guided by a very small thing, a little rudder. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Uh, and then he really does, you know, kind of keep on this, 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 this topic here. So um, very, um, very kind of you, James, to not be switching top um, uh, concepts too soon. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So now we have a third illustration, right? We've got the horse, we've got the ship, now we've got the forest burning because there was a little spark. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell, so liable to judgment, right? What you say matters. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, okay? But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison, how much of a challenge this is. Uh, especially, again, if we're, if we're taking our clues from verse 1 in the context of the kinds of things that we teach and say about God. Um, but now notice that the context does shift a little bit. So in verse 9, it's no longer simply about saying right things about God, but it's what do you say about other people? So we bless the Lord our Father, um, our Lord and Father, and with it we also curse people who are made in his likeness. This is very in line with the way that Paul, that, sorry, James is uh, uh, encouraging us throughout this letter to be whole people, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, in the words of verse chapter 1, verse 4, okay, as opposed to the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He wants us to be well-formed, well-rounded Christians, and here you have um, somebody who, on the one hand, does one thing towards God, but then on another, um, does another thing towards God's creatures whom he loves, whom he made in his image. And your tongue is the thing that can go either way. So from the same mouth, right? He wants us to be whole and complete. And so think about how, just like double-minded is a criticism, here we might think of double-tongued. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. Uh, my brothers, these things ought not to be. 
And this can be a very convicting thing. I know that um, just in various social situations that, you know, you can find yourself in, whether it's at a new job or in a community of friends, right? You you start to set a pattern for how we talk, right? And if you start getting um, getting loose with um, with one kind of speech, whether it be foul language or whether it be gossip or whether it be talking down to people, that tone kind of becomes just like how you speak, how this group of people you're in, um, what the what the community dynamic is. I've noticed that to be the case in a lot of places that that I'm in. And so it's very important to not to to to, to think twice about what you say because you can really set the temperature for your relationships that way. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a huge challenge for us. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce frig figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And here we get, we get the idea, right? That, that everything gets, if, if you have a little bit of loose speech, the whole thing can become ruined. And that, as I said, that can happen within a community and it can happen as, as individuals. Who is wise and understanding among you? Then he goes to in verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of, of, of wisdom. Uh, this is returning to some of the themes we looked at yesterday in chapter two and the importance of works. Okay. Uh, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So now what is going to ruin uh, conducting ourselves and, and showing our works in the meekness of, wid of wisdom? Well, these two things, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, okay? Because, and that, that characterizes not the wisdom that comes from God, which remember in chapter one, you can ask for, and God will give that generously to you. Um, but if it gets poisoned with these two things, jealousy and selfish ambition, and think about how tied those things are, then there's going to be disorder in every vile practice. So my desire to have what other people have, um, to 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 want uh, to be angry that somebody else is doing well um, uh, rather than me, and then having ambition just to make myself more comfortable or more popular or greater in my own eyes, or greater in other people's eyes, right? Those are the things that spoil um, showing your works in meekness of wisdom. Um, wisdom from above, the wisdom that God gives, is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, okay? It will listen to others and consider other points of view. It is full of mercy and good fruits, and it is impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if you want that, your life to be characterized by those things, then be very much on guard against jealousy and selfish ambition. Okay, everyone, that's it for today. As always, thanks for being with me. And as always, I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.